Hello there, and welcome back to the Paradox Podcast. Today, we are looking at Job chapters 22 to 31, and today's teaching is entitled, The Non-Sins of Job. The story of Job begins when everything in his life is in perfect order. He's rich, his marriage is rewarding, and his kids are healthy. Because of his good fortune, Job is deeply devoted to his religion and is entirely faithful to his God. But all of a sudden, tragedy strikes and Job loses everything. His land, his wealth, and even his children. Shortly after that, Job falls deathly ill and his marriage begins to fall apart. But through all of the pain and suffering and misfortune, Job continues to bless and praise the name of God. A few days later, his friends show up to comfort him, and they sit in silence around Job as Job becomes eerily quiet. For seven days, these four people sit in absolute and total silence. And then Job begins to speak in chapter 3. Now, it's here that if you're reading the book of Job, you'll realize that there is a shift in the literary structure of this book because chapters one and two are written in prose like most books. But from chapter three all the way to chapter 41, it's written in verse because Job is primarily a poem. Now, it's important for us to remember that the book of Job is primarily poetry. Because when something is primarily poetry instead of prose, we put more of an emphasis on the feelings, the symbolism, the metaphors than we do on the historical facts and literal truth of the events. Now in Job chapter three, in poetic form, Job changes his tune. He no longer praises God, but instead shakes his fists at the heavens and curses God and curses the day that he was born. This then launches us into the main section of Job that is 39 chapters long. And we've been going through these 39 chapters here on the Paradox Podcast. Two weeks ago, we went through the first section of this poetry, chapter 3 to chapter 14. And we talked about how Job does not offer answers in the midst of our unresolved suffering, but instead offers companionship. And we talked about how the church is at its best, not when it offers answers to people who are in pain, but instead is willing to suffer alongside them. Then last week, we looked at the second section of poetry, chapters 15 to 21, and we talked about the difference between healthy and unhealthy religion. Healthy religion leads us to trust our personal experiences with God. And the poetry of Job talks about Job trusting his experience more than his religious tradition. Which brings us to the third section, which we will talk about today, which is found in chapter 22, all the way down to chapter 31. Now, this poetry takes place between Job and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And what Job represents in this poem is he represents innocent suffering. In other words, Job did nothing wrong and he is suffering and he's trying to figure out why. 
Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, on the other hand, represent religion. And when you look closely at this poem, it becomes very obvious that the villains or the antagonists in this story are in fact Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. So Job is a provocative poem because it sets religion as the villain in this story. And religion points the fingers at Job and says, Job is suffering because he sinned. And Job's only response throughout all of these chapters of poetry is quite simply, no, I am innocent and I do not deserve this pain. Now today, I would like for us to look at the idea of sin. Because we've been doing church together for over four years. And in those four years, we've heard a lot of positive things and we've heard a few negative things. And one of the most consistent critiques we receive as a church is that when visitors come to visit our church, they often say things like this. I wish that Paradox talked about sin more. So if you have ever wished that we would talk about sin more, today is your day. We are going to talk about sin throughout this sermon. Now, church loves to talk about sin, but they don't talk about sin in a vacuum. When you think of traditional church, traditional church loves to tell the world that God is alive and that God wants you to be in heaven. Now, upon hearing those words, a skeptic would respond with a question. If God wants us to be in heaven, then why doesn't God take us to heaven now? And it's here that traditional church would launch into a larger story. They would say, let me tell you the history of where we have come from. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And God created man and woman and placed them in a garden. And in that same garden, God also placed a tree that contained all of the potential and capacity for human suffering that we have experienced since that day. But that was not enough for God because God also placed a snake in that tree to tempt that man and woman to partake of these extremely poisonous fruits. Now, it's here that the skeptic might ask, well, what does it say about God when God leaves children unsupervised with a poisonous tree? And then also allows a snake to be in that tree to tempt the children, but traditional church would keep on with the story. They would say the snake then spoke to the woman and tempted her to eat from the tree. Now her husband was standing beside her and she decided it would be okay to eat the fruit. And so she took a bite and then gave it to her husband who also took a bite. When God discovers that God's children have eaten from this tree, God responds with anger. But despite that anger, God kind of knew that these two would screw up, according to traditional church. And so God already had an evacuation plan in the works in case God's children betrayed God. And this plan involved God sending God's only son to be sent to this earth to be killed to satisfy either the wrath of God or the wrath of the devil, depending on who you ask. And when it comes to you and me and why we can't go to heaven now, it's because we all inherited the sin of Adam and Eve. And as you listen to this story, you keep thinking to yourself, there are a lot of logical fallacies in this story. But assuming that you could get past that, you would then ask church, 
So if we get rid of our sin, then we can see God. And they'd say, well, it kind of works that way. But yes, you should start getting rid of your sin. And you would say, well, what kind of sins are we talking about? And they'd say things like, well, smoking weed, drinking alcohol, premarital sex, jewelry, cursing, tattoos, and the worst sin of them all, drums in church. Now, these are a strange assortment of sins. But what I see consistently throughout church theology is that they view these sins as one's desire for pleasure. And whenever someone chooses pleasure or prioritizes pleasure over their devotion to God, that is the sin that the church cannot stand. That is the sin that all human beings should be able to repent from. And while we are all sinners, those are the sins that differentiate between who is part of the church and who is not. So in other words, the church tells the world that God is alive and God has standards, but those standards won't save you. But you better try to meet those standards because your acceptance of Christ is tangibly demonstrated by how hard you try to avoid sin. So there's this weird balancing act that people view at the heart of the Christian tradition, which is you have to believe so much and you also have to keep your sin to a minimum. In other words, for many people, the role of the church is to help you believe and to help you manage your sin. And when I hear people say, I wish they talked about sin more at Paradox, what I hear them saying is that the role of the church is to help me manage my sin. And when you neglect that, Craig, then you miss what the church is supposed to be. And I want you to know that I understand that and I used to personally believe it. And I believe that that understanding of church that helps you believe and helps you manage your sin is what is at the heart of what unfolds in Job chapter 22 to 31. While Job is in intense pain and in the middle of intense grieving, Eliphaz, his first friend, begins to speak to him in poetic form. And Eliphaz represents traditional religion. He says to Job, what use can man be to God, even the wisest of men? Would God sentence you for your piety or punish you for your faith? Your guilt must be great indeed. Your crimes must be inconceivable. You cheated your dearest friends, stripped your debtors naked, stole food from the hungry, let the destitute starve, spat on the widow and orphan, laughed in the beggar's face. That is why pain surrounds you and sudden terror has struck you. For God does not abandon the innocent. If you are pure, Job, then God will save you. So Eliphaz is attempting to convince Job that he is not innocent, that he is in fact suffering because he deserves it. And when you consider that Eliphaz represents church, church does its best to convince you and me that we are sinners. Now, church has a real interest in convincing people that they are sinners because if they can convince them that they are sinners, they can then also sell them the cure, which is acceptance of Jesus. And when church consistently convinces its congregants 
that they are in fact sinners, it means that the churchgoers have a real interest in convincing the church and God that they don't sin. Sure, their natural disposition is towards sin, but they love to convince others and God that they have it all together. That they don't struggle with the temptations of the world because they truly have accepted Jesus as their Savior. And because of that, church has become a bizarre piety contest. A bunch of people getting together on the weekend to try and prove how they are more worthy of heaven than the person that is sitting next to them. Now, Job sees this kind of weird contest that Eliphaz pitches, and he has none of it in chapter 23. He says back to Eliphaz, if only I knew where to meet God and could find my way to God's court, I would argue my case before God, words would flow from my mouth. I would counter all of God's arguments and disprove God's accusations. Surely God would listen to reason. I would surely win my case. For God knows that I am innocent. If God sifts me, I will shine like gold. Now understand the audacity that Job is showing in this passage. He is claiming that he could win a logical argument with God. That if God brought accusations before Job and said, Job, here is why you are suffering, Job would be able to logically overpower God and say, well, then you are unjust and you are to blame for all of this. In other words, Job refuses to believe that he is a sinner. Now it's here that church would be quick to say, wait, what are you saying, Job, that sin isn't real? Can't you see the world around you? It is filled with evil and suffering and pain. Don't tell me that sin doesn't exist. And Job, being willing to respond to that critique before it is even spoken, says, all right, let me tell you what I see as sin. In chapter 24, he says these words, Where are the days of judgment, the times when the wicked are tried? They steal land from their neighbors and walk away with their flocks. They drive off the orphan's donkey. They impound the widow's bull. They push the weak from the pathway and force the wretched to hide. The poor, like herds of cattle, wander across the plains, searching all day for food, picking up scraps for their children. Naked without a refuge, they shiver in the bitter cold. When it rains, they are drenched to the bone. They huddle together in caves. They carry grain for the wicked and break their backs for the rich. They press olives and starve, crush grapes and go thirsty. In the city, the dying groan and the wounded cry out for help. But God sees nothing wrong. So while it's progressive for Job to refuse to believe that he is a sinner, it is infinitely more progressive when he says, you want to know what sin is? Sin is God's response to all of the suffering of humanity. In other words, Job believes that God is the sinner in this story. 
Now, religion freaks out upon hearing that. So Job's second friend, Bildad, says in chapter 25, How can a man be pure or a son of woman be sinless? If God despises the moon and thinks the stars are tainted, what about man, that worm, that vile, sinking maggot? So Bildad hears Job accusing God of sinning against humanity by allowing all of this suffering to happen. And the only justification that Bildad can offer is that, yes, there is a lot of suffering, but we all deserve it. We are rotting maggots in God's eyes, and we have brought this on ourselves. And the minute you accept that, Job, is the minute that you can see that God is not at fault here and that we are at fault. So in order to maintain God's integrity... Religion needs to view human beings so low that religion compares them, compares people to maggots. Job responds in chapter 27, I swear by God who has wronged me and filled my cup with despair that while there is life in this body and as long as I can breathe, I will never, never let you convict me. I will never give up my claim. I will hold tight To my innocence, my mind will never submit. Job's third friend, Zophar, does not like this response. So he jumps right in and he says, This is the sinner's fate, Job, the violent man's reward. Famine devours his daughters. His sons are murdered by thieves. The sinner may heap up silver like dirt, pile up the finest linen, but the righteous inherit its wealth and the innocent share his possessions. Job does not even dignify Zophar with a response, but instead speaks to God over three lengthy chapters about the problems that Job has with God. In chapter 30, Job says these words to God, And now I am in agony. The days of sorrow have caught me. Pain pierces my skin. Suffering gnaws my bones. Despair grips me by the neck, shakes me by the collar of my coat, God, you show me that I am clay and make certain that I am dust. I cry out and you do not answer. I am silent and you do not care. So in other words, Job says, I am in pain, God, and you are choosing to do nothing. You must delight in my suffering. That or you don't even exist. Now, these are some strong words from Job, right? which raises the question that we have to ask, what on earth is happening here? Well, when you look at what Job is saying, he is telling his friends that no matter how much he prays, God refuses to hear his prayers. No matter how much he asks God to do something about his suffering, God doesn't do anything. No matter how much he's heard that God is alive, he hasn't experienced the life of God in some time. In other words, Job is experiencing firsthand the death of God. His testimony is not that God is alive, but rather that God is dead. Now, the church freaks out. When Job tells the world that God is dead, so much so that they would point to Job and say, heresy, 
God's not dead. God is surely alive. We made three movies about this, Job. Don't tell us that God is dead. That's not what faith is. And I have to tell you that when the church insists that God isn't dead, that I cannot help but smile at the irony of this whole situation. Because without a doubt, the number one symbol of the Christian church is the cross, where God died. Christians believe that God dies. And what's fascinating about the book of Job is that Job talks about the death of God five to 700 years before Jesus Christ walked on the earth and then was later crucified on the cross. And while Christians love to view the death of Jesus as a singular event, what the book of Job reveals is that the death of God is a universal event that all human beings eventually experience. And rather than testifying to how God is alive and God is powerful and God is all-knowing and God hears our prayers, Job says, I found God to be dead. And when you think about all of the suffering and agony and pain that Job is in, the only real response we can have is, of course. Of course you would. You have gone through hell on earth. And when you think about if we could invite Job to Paradox Church as our guest speaker, and if he could somehow be educated in the ways of modern Christianity today, and he was aware of this idea that the role of the church is to help one believe and to help one manage their sins, Job would respond by saying, well, when is the church going to talk about God's sins? I mean, yeah, you have sins and sometimes you have consequences for those sins, but God's sins are far greater than your sins. God watches as the hungry starve to death and doesn't do anything about it. In other words, this idea that the role of the church is to help believe and help manage sins is a bit problematic for Job. And I think that what Job would define church as is something very similar to what Peter Rollins defines as the role of church. Peter Rollins is a philosopher and he spoke at Paradox in 2018 and we loved having him. But just recently he talked about church and the value of church in America today in a YouTube video. And in that video, he said the role of the church is to enact the death of God. What? <laughs> the role of the church is to enact the death of God? What are you talking about, Peter Rollins? We're here to tell the world that God is alive. But it's here that he goes on to say, when the church enacts the death of God, it transforms the way of being for one who is immersed in the world. And what Peter Rollins is saying is that when we experience the living God, it often is encouraging and hopeful and even helpful in some cases, right? But it never asks us to change. But the death of God, on the other hand, is 
always transformational. To give you a quick example of this, if you have grown up in the church, then you knew from a very young age that if you prayed to God, that God would hear your prayer. And so you may have memories like me of praying to God and God answering those prayers in very concrete terms. For instance, I remember playing with a ball when I was a kid and we threw the ball into the bushes and we couldn't find it for five minutes. After five minutes, I prayed that God would help us to find the ball. And lo and behold, five minutes later, we found the ball. It was a miracle in my young mind. But eventually, and we've all experienced this at some point, we pray for something that is unquestionably good and God does nothing. Whenever we have an unanswered prayer, we experience the death of God. And it always asks us to change, to experience something transformational in the way that we perceive and understand what is true. Now, most churches I know do not like talking about this. So for that reason, church goes back to the sins and managing those sins, smoking weed, drinking alcohol, premarital sex, tattoos, and drums. And while there are variations of these lifestyle choices that can lead to terrible sins, such as sexual assault or driving while drunk, I have found that in most cases, these are not sins. They are consistently distractions. And the church loves to talk about these distractions because it helps them to avoid talking about the death of God in light of real unadulterated sin. And I want to be perfectly clear on this podcast. I believe that evil is real. I believe that sin is real. And if you want to know what I'm talking about when I talk about sin, I look at the tragic murder of George Floyd. And the only word I can use to describe that is sin. Something holy has been violated by this racially motivated Abuse of power and action of violence. And as an isolated incident, the murder of George Floyd is a terrible and tragic sin. But we all know that this isn't an isolated incident. America has a long history of white cops murdering black citizens who are innocent, who are unarmed, who do not deserve a lynch mob through the police badge. And so we have to also talk about how racially motivated police brutality is a sin. And this sin of racially motivated police brutality has been with us in the United States of America as long as we've had a country with police officers. But the problem is even bigger than racially motivated police brutality. Because when you consider the history of America, racism is a sin. And most Christians I know would respond by saying, absolutely, racism is a sin. I couldn't agree more. We disagree on the police brutality part because that's a few bad apples, but we agree that racism is a sin. But as far as what to do next, we would radically disagree. Because most Christians would say, don't worry, Craig, God will help us. 
Let's pray to God to help us with our racism problem. And then God will solve this for us because God is able. To which I would respond by saying, is God able? Because this has been going on for 400 years. Why hasn't God done something about this horrific sin yet? And rather than hearing the traditional words that God will help us, I lean into the words of Job speaking to God when Job says, I cry out and you do not answer. I am silent and you do not care. And for 400 years, the United States of America continues to return to its original sin of white supremacy. And God hasn't fixed it. We are experiencing the death of God when it comes to racial equality. My brothers, my sisters, my siblings, God isn't going to fix racism for us. And if you were to ask me, how can I be so bold to say that statement? I would cite 400 years of American history. God's not going to fix this for us. Now, there are those who would say, well, yes, God will fix this for us, Craig. God will eventually take all of us non-racists up to heaven. And once God disposes of the racists, well, then in heaven, we won't have the sin of racism anymore. There are two problems with that thinking. The first problem is that it externalizes racism and says that one who is speaking is above biases. Every bit of research out there shows that it is impossible to elevate oneself above their own biases. And the only way we're going to do something about this is if we all accept that we have both conscious and unconscious biases, and we need to be aware of and work on those biases. The second problem with this idea is that it assumes that God will all of a sudden snap God's fingers and we won't be racist anymore. <laughs> That's not how God works. God inspires people to change and then allows us to choose whether we will change or not. And so to assume that we'll go to heaven and not struggle with racism anymore is like a get out of jail free card that God doesn't offer so easily, right? Because over the past 400 years, when it comes to the injustice that is racism in America, we can only come to one logical conclusion. God isn't going to fix this for us, guys. It's on us to fix this. It's on us to change. And we can pray for God to intervene all we want, but God hasn't intervened yet. And I'm skeptical that God would intervene in the future. So what does it mean for us to accept that God isn't going to fix racism for us? I would like to speak to three different groups of people to speak about what that actually means for us in terms of application. So first, to my white brothers, sisters, and siblings. When we think about church in America, the whole system of church encourages us to deny and avoid our sin rather than recognizing our sins and seeking reconciliation. This is the equivalent of what has happened in white supremacy in America today. 
We have encouraged ourselves as white Americans to deny and avoid our racism rather than to accept it, confront it, and then change. As the great poet Propaganda once said on the stage of Paradox during his poem, 20 Years, how can we talk about unity if you're not ready to admit you wrong? To my white brothers, sisters, and siblings, we have a lot of work to do. We have to address the supremacy that we are tempted to believe in on a daily basis in America because of the color of our skin. And if we think that we're above it, if we want to deny the biases that we hold so closely, then at that point, we are perpetuating the system of white supremacy rather than working against it. I think one of the best things that we can do going forward is to read more books by people of color. So we're going to put our money where our mouth is here at Paradox, and we are starting a book club on Monday where we will read chapter by chapter the book So You Want to Talk About Race by Ijema Aluo. I will tell you that this is the best introduction to the topic of racism in America that I have encountered in my lifetime, and I think it's very well written and leads to lots of inspiring discussions. We'll be meeting on Mondays at 7 p.m. Pastor Mandy will be leading out, and we'd love for you to join and read this book because I found it to be personally helpful in becoming more aware of how I am part of the problem and how I can change to work against white supremacy in America. Now, of course, this book club is not only for white members of Paradox. It is also for anyone else who would like to join and discuss the problems and the sins of racism in America and how we can best work against it. I am calling out my white brothers, sisters, and siblings to acknowledge that we have a lot of work to do. And white supremacy is the sin that we are all working against. And rather than view ourselves as taking the lead on how to dismantle white supremacists, we should be listening to people of color who have borne the brunt of our sins for way too long and listen to their perspective and what America is like from their shoes and their ideas for how to make America better and trust their voices. We have a lot of work to do. Now, the second group I would like to speak to is to my brothers, sisters, and siblings of color who are hungry, who look at the events of this past week and say to themselves, I want to do something about this. Now, to you, I'd like to tell you a story that happened to me while I was at Montana State University. During my fourth year, I was an architecture student, and the way that architecture school works is you work on one project all semester, and then you present it during finals week in front of five professors and all of your classmates, and you tell people, this is what I've worked on, and the professors will tell you, well, this is what we think about it. It's a bit of an unnerving process if you're with me. <laughs> So I was presenting during my final critique of fourth year in architecture school, and there were the five professors, and I said, this is my project. I walked them through the basics and then said, and what do you think? And the first four professors all said things about the building. Some were positive, some were negative. But then we got to the fifth professor, 
And the fifth professor said, Craig, you made eye contact with every professor here except me. And at that moment, I looked at her and I looked at the other four male professors and she said, I have a feeling it's because I'm a woman. And she was right. Oh, not my best moment. I remember I wanted to get really defensive. I remember I really wanted to get angry. But I knew she was right. And all I could say was, I'm sorry. You're right. I will try to be better. From there, she critiqued my project, and I don't remember much of what she said. But for the rest of my life, I will remember that moment in school where it taught me that I am not above the sin of sexism. Now, what I deserved in that moment was for her to stand up, kick over my model, and say, this is trash, and then walk out of the room. I deserve that fully, right? But instead, Dr. Lori Riker was willing to teach me and speak honestly and boldly to me. And she taught me one of the most valuable lessons in my lifetime. So to my brothers, sisters, and siblings of color, to you that are hungry, who believe that you have something to say, to you I would say, speak boldly. Speak loudly. Trust your experience. Be honest when you open up and tell the world about what you are going through. Because we need it. And I believe that people can change. I believe that I can change. And I believe that you can change. But it usually happens on an incremental level, one person at a time. And Dr. Riker spoke boldly to me, and because she did, it changed me, and I am grateful to her. Which brings us to the third group of people I want to speak to. And it is also to my brothers, sisters, and siblings of color. But it's not to those of you who are hungry, but to those of you who are experiencing an overwhelming sense of fatigue. L.Z. Granderson wrote in the L.A. Times on Friday, for those of you who are tired of reading about racism, trust me when I say this, I'm tired of writing about it. Killer Mike at a news conference on Friday said, I woke up yesterday wanting to see the world burn down because I'm tired of seeing black men die. And Austin Channing Brown responding to officials telling the world that George Floyd had pre-existing conditions that led to his death responded by saying, I am so freaking tired. If you are feeling those things, I don't know what else to say to you other than I am sorry. Society has placed on you a burden that is simply unfair. I don't know what it's like to be the only person in your workplace that looks a certain way. I don't know what it's like to be underrepresented in forms of media and in political leadership. 
I don't know what it's like to feel like you have to be excellent all the time to represent your race. And I don't know what it's like to face the discrimination that you go through. I am truly sorry for the unfairness that is this life. I know that when society encounters stories like George Floyd's, they try to justify his death by saying that he was asking for it or that he sinned against society or that he committed some crime to deserve this punishment. And the only thing I can tell you is that this is what I believe Job experienced so long ago when religion kept pointing the finger to him and saying, surely, Job, surely you did something to deserve this. And Job insisted on his innocence and religion refused to accept it. My hope and my prayer is that you find some solidarity in the scriptures, specifically in the story of Job, who is innocent in this story. And that when Job shakes his fists at the heaven and says, I cry out and you do not answer, I am silent and you do not care, that you hear words that are your own as well. And to all of my brothers and sisters and siblings, may we all work diligently to be part of a church that is anti-racist, to be people individually who are anti-racist, and to personally take on the responsibility to be anti-racist. Because God isn't going to fix racism for us. Amen. Amen.